for the next three weeks, uh, I, I'm going to just be visiting in the book of Mark, the book of Mark. Um, and I'll get to more of Mark in just a little bit. But for a few weeks, I want to give you some practical tools for how to get the absolute most out of your time in God's Word. This is how we take a message like we heard during revival and we start to put it into action. Does that interest anyone? What I'd like to do, is, and I'll, we're going to hand out uh, a way that you can track along with some Bible reading, if that would help you through the Gospel of Mark these next few weeks. We'll hand those out here at the end in a little while. And next week, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have some discussion about what you're seeing in the Gospel of Mark um, based on what we're reading, based on maybe some of the skills that we acquire tonight, or maybe you get sharpened up on a little bit. But first, I want to teach about those skills, and I want to talk about Bible study methods. The scripture that I want to call your attention to first is in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 15, just one verse of scripture, you don't have to stand but I'll read it in your hearing. Psalm 119 verse 15 says this, I will meditate, everybody say meditate. That will become important in a little while. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. We'll come back to that verse in a little while, I promise. I want to talk about Bible study methods, Bible study methods. And the first category, and you'll see it on the handout, I'm going to try to be easy to follow tonight, is guardrails for Bible study. Anytime that I teach about how to get the most out of your time in God's Word, I almost always start with these kind of guardrail mentalities that help us from, uh, from two things. Number one, it helps us from turning our Bible study time into a dry, clinical, uninspiring, not very fun time. Uh, the other place it keeps us from veering off into is into this weird territory where we get into stuff that's not the Bible and that's not rooted in God's Word, and we get off into a bunch of nonsense. We don't want to get there either. So these guardrails help us. Here's the first guardrail that I would call your attention to. The Bible is the ultimate authority. God's Word is our ultimate authority. And this may seem elementary to you, but understand that if you have not settled the fact that the Word of God is the ultimate authority for your life, everything that's to come isn't going to hold a whole lot of water. You need to settle it that God's Word, the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, are the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. Here's what God's Word says about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Some of the older translations say that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It comes directly from the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, God says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus echoes that same sentiment himself, and he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Then even in the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, John the Revelator says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. The Word of God, the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible are the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. The second guardrail that you must have in place is that context is king. Context is king. Let me tell you what I mean uh, by that. It's very popular today to take a sound bite out of context. Something that someone says, it's part of a larger remark that they make, they pull a couple sentences of it, and they can almost twist it and contort it to mean or to appear to mean whatever they want it to mean. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Does that ever happen in the news? does in the news that I watch, okay? Context is king. Soundbite theology is bad. Don't pull a verse out of context and contort it to mean whatever you need it to mean. That's not good. It's not good at all. 
it matters what is being said around that scripture. A helpful rule of thumb, maybe, is to take a, a 2020 approach. If you want to see it with 2020 vision, look at the scripture that you're, that's in question that you're wanting to drill down on and understand. What do the 20 verses before it mean? And what do the 20 verses after it mean? Need some ink pens? Okay. I forgot to give those to you guys. I apologize. What do the 20 verses before it say? And what do the 20 verses after it say? If you go 20 verses in each direction, you're going to get a decent sense of the overall flow of thought that's being, that's being brought out. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes and says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Perfect. I mean, that's tremendous. He's talking about something in that chapter, however. There's a particular context to that. He's not saying, I can, I mean, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to dunk a basketball. I mean, it's not going to happen. That's not what he's talking, he's not talking about, it's not, it's inspirational, but it's not that kind of inspirational, like, it's, it, it, it's, it's a strength building verse. It's supposed to be marrow to our bones. It's supposed to say, you know what? No matter what hardship comes, no matter how much persecution I face, I can be the person of God that God has called me to be no matter what the circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So also, speaking of context, it's not a terrible idea to also be a student of history if you want to understand what's going on in the Bible. It should probably, hopefully not come as a surprise that the Bible is very old. The Bible was written during a time that is, I'll just say, completely foreign to all of us. Some of it, even the earliest parts of the Bible, over 2,000 years ago. And so it wouldn't be a bad idea to be a student of history a little bit as well. Uh, for instance, we've been studying the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights for a while, if you're doing a deep dive into the book of Daniel, it helps to know what in the world is going on with Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. Who are these people? What do they believe? Where did they come from? I mean, uh, if you're, if you're going to study if you're gonna study Jonah, where does Jonah get called to? Nineveh? Where is Nineveh? Assyria? Who are the Assyrians? Who knows? But it makes a difference. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, he hated the Assyrians. Everyone hated the Assyrians. They were awful. They did terrible things to people. They weren't very nice. But that's the thumbnail version. You can be a student of history, and you can find out a whole, whole lot of things about Assyria, a whole lot of things about Babylon. Uh, a, a good example, and I'm just trying, I know, you, I know you believe what I'm saying, but I'm trying to make the point, and part of what I'm doing is I'm trying to whet your appetite a little bit so that you'll dig in to some things maybe you've never dug into before. Uh, when the Old Testament ends, uh, between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning, how many knows how many years approximately? 400, about 400 years? About 400 years. What in the world happens in those 400 years? I mean, I know this much. I turn from Malachi to Matthew, and all of a sudden, there's Romans. They weren't there before. And, and what's more, it's in a, the Bible is not in the same language anymore. Now it's in Greek. What is this Greek business? How did these people start speaking Greek and writing everything in Greek? Well, I can tell you. During those 400 years, a guy named Alexander conquered the known world. And everything turned Greek. But you wouldn't know that if you weren't a student. You just flip over to the other chapter. I mean, who are these people? Who are these Sadducees? What? So a student of history would look into those 400 years and start to gain some appreciation for everything, the world that Jesus lived in. And, I mean, 400 years ago from where we stand right now is the Mayflower. So, I mean, I know we just kind of say 400 years and we move on, but, I mean, what's happened in the last 400 years around here? There's been some things change. Number three, 
Guardrail number three. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture will interpret Scripture. And if you will allow it to, it will keep you from getting into weird stuff. Okay? If there's a verse that sounds a little odd and you're like, I don't know what that's all about. Well, the Bible has some other things to say about that. And we're going to get into how to find some of those here in a minute. But the rule is, the guardrail is, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Bible is not an error. The Bible does not contradict itself. And so when we examine one passage in the Bible, we need to approach it with one eye on that passage and our other eye on what the rest of the Bible has to say about that topic. Because it shouldn't be read in isolation. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let me give you some good practices. Those are the guardrails. Let me give you some of the practices, if this would help. The good, and understand, this is not necessarily the exhaustive end-all, be-all. There might be a glaring omission, something I completely swung and missed at that you may think of and be like, boy, Boo doesn't totally miss this one thing that I think is really important. I'll be the first to admit, maybe that's so, but this is my list. So good practices. Number one, have a plan. If you want to get the absolute most out of your time in God's word, have a plan. He who fails to plan, plans to fail. Have a plan. Have a plan. Number two, combine it with prayer. Combine it with prayer. John chapter 16 verse 13 says, However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. There's something supernatural that happens when a Holy Ghost-filled person, someone who has the spirit of God dwelling in them, opens the Bible and sincerely desires to understand what the word of God is saying to them. The Holy Ghost will help us. And so it's helpful not to have our prayer life and our Bible life in these separate silos, but to combine our time in the word with prayer. Number three, read well. Now, I'm going to put up later, I'll put it in our Facebook group or I'll email it out to everyone or something, but there's a link that I'll, I'll, I'll show you. I'm not talking about you have to be able to read a bunch of words or you have to be a fast reader. I'm saying you need to be a serious reader. Be a serious reader. Be a serious reader. And there's a way to read superficially on the surface, and there's a way to read well. And I'm, I'm, I'm advocating tonight for being a demanding reader. Um, there's an old book uh, about how to do this. If you would like it, you can get it. Uh, it's called How to Read a Book. How to Read a Book. I know. It cracks me up every time I think about it. But it, it, it may, it, there's, there's an article I found online that's the Cliff Notes version of it. That's, that's, I'll, I'll put it out there for circulation and you can look at it. But it makes a good point. It helps when you're, when you're engaging with a book to read well. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to be the world's best reader. It just means read seriously. Read seriously. Number four, uh, this, this reading well takes us to the next one, which is ask questions. Ask questions. When you're reading your Bible, ask questions. Who? What? When? Where? How? Why? I just did that, and I was kind of being a little bit lighthearted and silly, but I kind of did that when we were talking about Jonah and Assyria a second ago. Who? Who are they? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to have a plan to hand out here in a minute. I'm glad you asked. You know, they've, there are on the internet or even on apps on your phone, and I'm, I've printed one out because I don't want you to have to rely on the internet. There are plans for Bible reading. Sure. Yeah, if you're reading a chapter a day, if you're reading three chapters a day, there's, a, there's an app, and I'll get into some resources here in a minute, but there's an app that a lot of people have. Uh, 
called YouVersion. It's kind of the most, it's the most popular Bible app on the planet. I forget how many downloads they've had. Billions and billions. There's, that's what it looks like. Um, they have tons of plans on there. Tons of plans. I mean, they have plans on there that will guide you through the Bible uh, pretty slowly over the course of two or three years. They have plans in there that will lead you through the entire Bible in 90 days, where you're reading 16 or 17 chapters a day, and, and at all points in between. And they have it broken up into New Testament, Old Testament. They have it mixed together. They have uh, isolated books to where you can find, I want to read through Ezekiel. Well, they've got Ezekiel broken up into little pieces, and you go through and you can do that. That's very handy. Uh, some Bibles, some Bibles in the back or the front, usually in the back, some of them come with a Bible reading plan somewhere in the back by the maps. I've got a couple Bibles that have something like that. They have an example, and it's like a whole year. Now, it's in microscopic print, but it is there. It's very handy. That's a great question. There's, there's, there's all kinds of plans uh, I would recommend having a plan like I've just described and also have a planned time and place where you read your Bible. So uh, if you're wanting to establish a habit of reading your Bible, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard is if you're trying to establish any habit, attach it to a habit that already exists. So if you drink coffee in the morning and sit in your chair and you do that religiously without even thinking about it every single day, and you want to start or strengthen your habit of reading the Bible every day, start doing it while you have your coffee. Put the newspaper down and pick your Bible up and do that. And in short order, you will probably have a Bible reading habit because you've attached it to an already strong habit. If you don't drink coffee, hopefully you brush your teeth every day, I don't know how one goes about reading their Bible while brushing their teeth, but I'm sure you can figure it out. Maybe you're listening to the Bible. But attach it to some habit and get the, get the, get the momentum going. But have a plan for it. Have a time and a place where you typically do your Bible reading, your Bible study. Well, there you go. Only three weeks to form a habit, and I'll tell you, this is a spoiler. I'll, I'll, I'll hand this out in a little while. Well, you can come pick it up if you want one, and if you need more, I can print them off. Mark has 16 chapters, so what I've done is I've gone Monday through Friday, so that's three weeks. So uh, I've given you, given you about three weeks' worth of a plan here, and uh, maybe, maybe it's a stepping stone for somebody. Uh, that's my goal. So uh, ask questions. Ask questions questions is, is one of the good practices. So a question, someone, since we're, since we're all together tonight, someone give me a good question you might ask. What does that mean? Or who was that again? Yeah, who said that? Who said that? I kind of got lost in that paragraph. Who was actually talking there? Yeah, how much is a drachma? Huh? Where do you find that at? Where's that city? How long does it take for, to get from that city to the place they're going? How far is that? What was you asking? I forgot to. I'm sorry. <laughs> what is a drachma? Yeah. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, yeah it's a denomination of money. It's a type of money. But like how much is it? Yeah, what is it and how much is it? How would you even know what a drachma is? You know? Um, or a shekel or a cubit right? I mean, you don't get seven chapters in the Bible and they're talking about cubits. Who knows what a cubit is, you know? Yeah, but I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Is, is it a big measurement? Is it a little measurement? Genre, what kind of book is this? Is this poetry? Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Um, is it a letter? Is it apocalyptic? How, how am I supposed to Read this, because I mean, you read poetry differently than you read prose, and if you haven't, if you don't believe me, let's, well, we'll go to the library tomorrow. But you read, you, they're meant to be read differently, understood differently. 
You ask different questions of them. Maybe, uh, who was the original audience? Who did this book get written to? Where in the world is Corinth? Who are these Corinthians? What was their problem? Why did they need two letters? (laughs) What was wrong with them? All valid questions. What kind of people were the Corinthians? What kind of gods did they worship? What kind of commerce did they deal in? Where were they located at? Were they nice people? Were they warring people? Yeah, they needed two letters. So, yeah. All good questions. Good questions. Ask questions. Ask questions and then go find the answers. If you can't find the answers, then talk to someone who maybe can point you in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> Number five, keep a notebook. Keep a notebook. This is just good practices. These are not that like the laws of the land, but these, these things will give you a leg up. Keep a notebook. Now, I've got, I've got a few of the notebooks that I've I pulled them off my shelf. That's a few of the ones that I've worked through. Um, there's nothing pretty about them. I'm just going to, I'm going to set you free. Your notebooks do not have to be color-coded. They do not have to be social media worthy. They're probably never going to be read by anyone but you or perhaps your grandchildren one day, many years from now. Um, they don't even have to be legible, really. It helps, but they don't really have to be. That's optional. The palest ink is stronger than the best memory. Write it down. Write down your questions. I did, I'll get to it in a second, but I was reading Mark chapter 1 and 2 yesterday morning and just writing down questions. Just, I'll get to them here in a minute. Write down your questions. Write down the answers you find. I have notebooks that have questions that I've answered that I'm ashamed to say I've never gone and found the answers for, but maybe one day I will. Keep a notebook. They can be ugly. They can be used. They can be disorganized. Hear me, write in it every day. It's okay. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. If you miss, like, it's not like a diary. It's just a notebook, okay? You can write, you can use it as a diary or a journal or whatever you want to use it for. But if you miss a day, it's okay. Don't quit. Just keep going. Pick it up the next time you need it. It's not a big deal. Keep a notebook and keep it with you. Keep it with you. Number six, talk with others. Good practices. Talk with others. We aren't meant to do this alone. You're not in this by yourself. And the fact is, I can usually tell who's reading their Bible and studying their Bible by who is talking about their Bible. Because when you're, when you're in the Word, it's kind of hard to... I mean, I'm not saying like every single conversation, but I mean, eventually, it's going to come up if it's something you do every day. A lot of times it comes out in your conversation. Find someone who will talk about the Bible with you. Develop a friendship with that person. You don't have to have anything else in common. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to have a single other thing in common. Just talk about the Bible. Number seven, listen to biblical preaching and teaching. A lot of times we do this in this setting. Listen to biblical preaching and teaching. What really helps when we're in this setting and we're listening to our biblical preaching and teaching is to have your Bible with you. Bring your Bible to church. Bring your notebook to church. Those are just good practices. They will give you a leg up. They will make you stronger. Brother Holloway talked to us about letting the baker bake. You have to be in the Word. Let's talk about making a plan. Making a plan. This is, this is a template. This is not the only way to do it. This is what I have written down for our edification tonight. 
Maybe it helps you. In the absence of any other plan, this plan will work. So let me tell you uh, what the plan looks like. Step one, slow down. Slow down. And give quality time to God's word. Not leftover time. Bishop said it this past weekend during revival. Have you ever read a chapter of anything but of your Bible in particular and then look up and not remember a single thing that you just read? Okay? I think we've all done it. And if you've done it, it doesn't mean that you're lost. It just means you probably need to slow down a little bit and engage your mind. The Bible all the time talks about loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. It's possible to live the Lord with your mind. A lot of times it involves slowing down, slowing down. Let me tell you what I mean by slowing down. Don't feel like you have to read the whole Bible next week. Slow down. I said this during revival. We overestimate what we can do in a month, and we underestimate what we can do in a year. We'll make big plans for what we're going to do next week. And we'll grossly overestimate ourselves. Slow down. Slow down. Number two, pick a key verse each day. So what you're probably going to be doing if you're reading is you're going to be reading. Maybe you start with just a verse or a few verses, but eventually you're probably going to branch out and be reading a chapter or a couple chapters a day. And if that's where you're at or that's where you want to be in your time in God's word, if you're reading a chapter or two a day, let's just say a chapter, read that chapter and select a key verse that day from that chapter. Now, how do I know which one? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Don't get tied up in knots over it. Is there a verse in that chapter in your reading for that day? Is there a verse that's of personal importance? Maybe there's a verse that speaks to the situation that you're dealing with right then. Maybe that's the verse you land on. Maybe that's the verse you pick for that day, that key verse for your day. Uh, maybe, maybe it's none of those things, and perhaps it's a scripture that's of doctrinal importance. Maybe you read the chapter and you think, boy, that verse really grounds me in this particular belief that I have. That's going to be my verse for today. Don't get too wound up about picking out which one it is, because if the Lord tarries, it's probably not going to be the last time you ever read that chapter of the Bible. You're going to get another shot at Mark chapter 1. Hopefully. Number three, here's what you're going to do with that verse. You're going to meditate on that key verse. I told you we were coming back to the word meditate. It took us a while, but we got there. Meditate. Isn't that some kind of Eastern thing? Don't I have to sit cross-legged on the floor? And negative. You do not. And I would not recommend doing any of those things. Yoga, transcendental meditation, no. Anything that's spiritualism, new age stuff, no. No, 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 no. Number one, that's not what I'm talking about. Number two, I do not recommend those things. I'm talking about meditating in the way that the Bible speaks of meditating. Meditate is one of those words that's been stolen by other belief systems, other spiritual moves. Meditating and contemplating. God's word. I will meditate, Psalm 119.15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. This is the heart of what I want to pass along to you tonight. It's a big shame that meditating on God's word has been called under suspicion by non-Christian practices. Meditate means carry it around with you. Meditate means hold it in your mind, keep it in front of you, incorporate it into your prayer Remember what I said about combining your prayer and your time in God's word? What is the word 
that best describes that in action. It is the word meditate, contemplate. It's when we bring the word of God into our prayer time. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words, which I command you this day, shall be in your heart. Talking about meditate. Just two verses after, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, we receive the command to meditate on these words that God is giving us. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house. You walk by the way, you lie down when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They literally would bind the word of God to their bodies. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. They had them in their home. They had the word of God displayed. That's what it means. That's part of meditating, contemplating the word of God. Meditating on God's word is not creating your own reality and drifting off into another dimension of existence. That's not the meditation that I'm speaking of right now. Meditating on God's word is combining God's word with prayer and visualizing in your mind and in your spiritual imagination everything God wants you to become and everything God is doing in the earth. That's what it means to contemplate the things of God. And God calls us to do that. The book of Psalms has it all over the place. There's over 31,000 verses in the Bible. And if you were to take a plan like this and have verses that you meditate on, that you select from your daily reading and you meditate on for that day, it would take you 31,000 days if you decided to work through the whole Bible, 85 years. So here's the beautiful thing. Here's what I want to encourage you with. If your prayer, I know we're talking about Bible, but if your prayer life ever feels stale and it feels repetitive and it just feels like, oh, I'm just going through, the, and you need something fresh, if you will take a plan like I've described to you, taking the Word of God, <clears throat> the Word of God, and taking a verse every day and meditating and taking it into your prayer life, it will give you a fresh component in your prayer life every single day for 85 years. So, I mean, that's how being in God's word, transferring over to your prayer life, keeps your prayer life alive and vibrant and fresh when you start meditating on the word of God and contemplating what it says. Here's number four. Number four, part of the plan. At the end of a week, pick one of the week's key verses and memorize it. Memorize it. There's a lot I could say about memorizing God's word. And I won't launch headlong into all of that right now. But it's one of the best practices you could ever have. And I believe I can say with confidence that every person under the sound of my voice has the ability to memorize one scripture a week. It is possible. Make an index card, make it your lock screen on your phone, but at the end of the week, you've had several that you've been meditating on and contemplating, pick one of those for the following week and commit it to memory. Number five, you're going to think I'm cute when I'm saying this, but I'm absolutely not. Repeat. Repeat. It's not good enough to have a plan that you only go through one time. Repeat. Repeat it. That's not a way to get a fifth step. That is perhaps the most important step in the entire plan. All of these Bible study methods are workable by anyone. Now, I want you to notice, before we go into Mark for just a moment, I want you to notice that everything we've talked about, all the Bible study methods we've discussed so far, there's been no mention of other books. There's been no mention of commentaries. 
and there's been no mention of receiving an advanced degree because it doesn't take any of those things. All of those things have their place, but being a student of God's word and letting the baker bake has nothing to do with any of those things. It can be done completely independent of any other materials, of any, what anyone, else, anyone else's opinions about the word of God. You could be on a desert island with the Bible and a notebook, hopefully. Oh, oh no, I, I would. I would absolutely recommend. I would recommend. There's books I would recommend. There's people I would recommend. Uh, there's commentaries I would recommend and resources to look into what something means. But most of what I've described tonight can be done mostly without that or with a very small amount of it to where you do not need a bookshelf as long as this wall filled with, with resources. You simply just do not. There's all kinds of good resources, and I'll give you a few here in a minute. Um, all kinds of good resources. Well, let's just talk about it. We're there. Um, there's, there's study Bibles. Study Bibles are excellent. Uh, this is an apostolic study Bible from Word of Flame Press. Uh, this is an English Standard Version study Bible, an ESV study Bible. It's very good. Uh, they have tons of footnotes in them. Now, you need to understand the footnotes are not inspired by God. They are simply that. They are little helps. They are not infallible, but they're helpful, a lot of them. Uh, they'll have, who has a Bible with maps in the back of it? Okay. The maps, also not inspired, but colorful and helpful. And they help children pass the time during church. At least they did me when I was a child. So, <laughs> um, just being honest. Uh, this one does have a daily Bible reading plan in the back of it. I knew I wasn't making that up. Yeah, that small one does too. So um, a lot of, the, lot of study Bibles, even mo ones much smaller than this, will have some semblance of a concordance where you can find uh, where a word will repeat itself in Scripture. That's very helpful. That's a very good resource. Uh, I have one up here. Uh, this big burgundy one is a Strong's Concordance. Um, it's coded. I'm just going to save you the trouble. They've digitized it. It's on the internet. You go to blueletterbible.com, and it's all hyperlinked. It's got a, that, that small Bible has a concordance in it, too. So most Bibles have some of these. A lot of times you get into a larger study Bible, and it will have an expanded, expanded maps, expanded concordance, things like that. Uh, you can buy individual resources like this, but a lot of these resources, uh, they've been digitized, and they're on the internet. And the blueletterbible.com uh, is a good place where you can find uh, something like that. Um, when I was growing up, I had a Thompson Chain Reference Bible. Who has a Thompson Chain Reference Bible? Okay, a lot of those. I still have one. Uh, those are helpful. A lot of Bibles, uh, even if it's not a full-blown, big, chunky study Bible, uh, will have cross-references in it. Those are helpful. Those are helpful. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Mark chapter 1. Turn open to Mark chapter 1, just very quickly. Mark chapter 1. We'll put a little bit of this into practice, and then, um, then we'll wrap up for tonight. As you're turning to Mark chapter 1, let me ask some of the questions about Mark. I'm going to give you pieces of the answers that I know, but these are things maybe they just get, maybe they just get the gears turning. Maybe you can look some of this up on your own. Context. What can we learn about the context of Mark's gospel? What kind of book is Mark? It's a gospel. It's a gospel. What genre is it? It's a, it's a narrative. It's, a, it's not poetry. It's, it's a narrative gospel. It tells a story. Who wrote it? Who wrote Mark? Well, believe it or not, there was a guy named John Mark. He wrote Mark. Uh, why? Anyone ever thought about that? Why? Well, most people agree 
and most of the evidence points towards Mark. Mark was not an eyewitness, by the way. Mark was not one of the 12 apostles, 12 disciples. Most of the evidence points towards Mark having a personal relationship with Simon Peter. And so Mark, the Gospel of Mark was probably written in the late 50s or early 60s A.D., and it was probably written in Rome because that's where Peter was, imprisoned. And Mark, sitting next to Peter, probably was hearing Simon Peter's firsthand stories and accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and under Simon Peter's direction, wrote those down. Wrote those down. Some of the ways that we know that is because the Gospel of Mark is not nice to Simon Peter. So, Brother Darrell, if you, were, you and me were writing a book about anything, and we were trying to make sure that we didn't become the main character in the book, we would probably not paint ourselves as the hero very often. <laughs> We'd probably make strides, take, take strides to keep the spotlight on Jesus. And so Peter's telling these stories, and he's prob- he, there's not much flattering about Simon Peter in the Gospel of Mark. But when Simon Peter is in the middle of the action in the Gospel of Mark, you get a lot of detail. And when Simon Peter is not in the middle of the action, you don't get as many details. So it tells us that we're probably, we're probably dealing with eyewitness accounts here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so here's other questions. Other questions. What is the message of the Gospel of Mark? What is the, mess- the overall message? Is there a discernible, organized outline to this book? Is there a beginning, a middle, an end? Any points in between? What sets Mark apart from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John? What is different about Mark? You're correct. It does not include anything about the birth of Jesus. So there's different, these are just questions. I'm not saying that these are all things I'm going to answer right now. These are just questions for digging, digging and, and they'll lead you to the thread you can pull on. So Mark chapter 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, I'm going from memory. Uh, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, as it is written by Isaiah the prophet. So right out of the gate, you get a, an Isaiah quote. Well, I'm not that good. I'm not good enough with Isaiah to know exactly where that quote comes from. But alas, I have a footnote. I have a cross-reference. And it tells me that that quotation and the one in verse 3 as it goes is from Isaiah chapter 40. Now that's helpful. So then I flip over to Isaiah chapter 40 and I start digging around in Isaiah chapter 40. Now I'm still in Mark, so I'm not going to get hit a rabbit trail and end up just completely gone out of Mark. But I'm able to flip over to Isaiah. I'm able to take a look at Isaiah, maybe read exactly what is being quoted here. That's helpful. That's a cross-reference, um, a Thompson chain reference even in action, a footnote in action. That's very, very helpful. Otherwise, you're going to be searching for a long time to figure out where in the world that quote came from in Isaiah. Let's look at verse 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John in the wilderness. What wilderness? Who knows? That's a good, that's, go to the maps. Dig into that. What wilderness are we talking about? Are we talking of, I mean, it's somewhere in Israel, but what wilderness are we we talking about? Uh, It says he's, the baptism of repentance. What is a baptism of repentance? I know I'm asking more questions now than I'm answering, but what is a baptism of repentance? Was, Was baptism, was water baptism a common practice back then? Were there other, did John invent baptism? Or were there other, no, he didn't, you're right. Baptism, water baptism was something that was, that was a part of these, every once in a while there would be a preacher, there would be a renewal movement that came along that would call people away from their sins and that would, this was, it wasn't a completely foreign concept to baptize in water. Verse, uh, verse 10 is when Jesus is baptized and there's, the spirit comes on him like a dove. Brother Holloway talked to us about that, didn't he? 
you may remember. In the story of Noah, there's that dove. I'm not going to get all the way back into that, but you can go listen to Brother Holloway's message. There it is. What is it? Why, why, in the, why a dove? What in the world's going on with this dove? Where else do we see a dove in Scripture? Your footnotes might point you back to Genesis and tell you, oh, you're noticing this dove here. When Jesus was baptized, maybe you should go back and look at this story in Genesis and connect the dots a little bit. Verse 13, the word appears, and it is the word immediately. Where does, give me the New King James. New King James, please. Immediately. Did I write down the wrong one? I sure enough did. Is it immediately? Okay. Verse 12. Okay. Verse 12. I'm sorry. The word of God is infallible, but I am not. Verse 12. Immediately. You will notice in the gospel of Mark that the word immediately or some word like it shows up all over the place. They're doing everything immediately. And immediately they go there. And immediately, and then they go there. And it's just like, it's, it's almost like got a frantic. So immediately shows up in verse 12. Then it shows up in verse 20. Then it shows up in verse 21, verse 23, verse 29. That's just chapter one. That's just chapter one. It is all over the place. It, it runs like a sitcom. I hate to make that comparison, but shows that go from one scene to another real fast. That's what the Gospel of Mark is like. You know why? It was probably written to an audience that, needed that to keep up with it. If it's being written in Rome, Romans liked to be entertained. Had to have something all the time. And so they wrote it in such a way, immediately, 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 action everywhere, going from place to place, one thing to the next, not lingering anywhere, just boom, boom, boom. At the end of the chapter, Jesus calls what do we know about the fishing trade? What do we know about fishing? You know about fishing probably. But what do we know about fishing back then? That's a good question. That's a good question. What do we know about the fishing enterprise, the fishing industry around then? Nets. There's nets. There's boats. Uh, you see Zebedee, their dad. Uh, he had some, uh, I forget the word. They're basically employees, people he's hired on. So they have... Yeah, hired servants. They, they, have, they have a business. They have a small business going, fishing business. Was that a good livelihood to be in back then? I mean, yeah. Some, yeah, right. So it, there's a lot to learn about the way of life that these, these, these key figures that Jesus was calling into the ministry. There's a lot of information, a lot of depth of character that you can learn about these guys. For instance, Sister Jody said, if it was a nighttime type of business, these guys were night owls. Who is a night owl? Any night owls? See? We're just learning things about, about the disciples all over the place tonight. But there's a depth of character to these people. They're real people. They're not caricatures. They had livelihoods. What were their livelihoods like? We can find some of that thing out. Last but not least, Brother Kate and I were talking today. We were talking about our favorite Bible stories, and one of the stories that came up throughout the course of our conversation was uh, the story in Mark chapter 2, uh, if the musicians would come. Mark chapter 2, the very beginning, talks about the man that was paralyzed, and he couldn't get to Jesus. How many love that story? Couldn't get to Jesus. Couldn't get to Jesus, and his friends picked him up. They picked him right up. How many of you are glad to have the kids and the youth in here with us tonight? I'm picking on them a little bit. They picked him up, and they led him down through the roof right into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus saw their faith and healed him. And, I mean, it's, it certainly does. I mean, it, it gets to the top of people's favorite stories for a reason. We can ask a lot of questions about even that story that's very, very familiar to many of us. What kind of house is this? What kind of house is this that they're getting into? What kind of roof did they have to tear through? Was it like made out of grass, thatched wood? Was it made out of mud? What? How did they have this thing built? Right, right. 
Well, I've got a question. How did they get him up there? Was there stairs? Did they build these houses with stairs most of the time? Or was, and maybe they did. If they did, if, hear me, even if they did have stairs, we're talking about carrying a human being up them. If there's no stairs, then if they didn't build houses with stairs on the outside back then, then what are we looking at? Are we looking at a pulley system? I, I don't know. I don't know. In any case, we know it was a monumental effort to get him up there. It was no small thing. But when we start to dig into the Word of God, we start to ask questions. It starts to bring a story like that out of black and white into living color. And all of a sudden, we can see the amount of effort that these gentlemen, what kind of love must have they had to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my friend into the presence of Jesus. When we start to ask questions like that, it brings God's word to life. For a few weeks, I want to give you some practical tools to how to get the absolute most out of our time in the word of God. And I want to give you some some bits and pieces, maybe ask, just ask a lot of questions and have good discussion about the gospel of Mark as we read through it and kind of survey it together. As we conclude this evening, I want to direct your attention, your spiritual appetite back to the practice of meditating on God's word. I want to advocate to you for meditating and contemplating on the word of God. Try it. It's a real difference maker. I save this for the end because I want us to pray on this tonight for a little while before we leave. Meditation is difficult. The kind, the kind of contemplation and slowing down. There was someone who said, they said, hurry, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. I don't know if I agree with that, but I understand what he's saying. How many of us feel hurried, feel busy? Sometimes we just need to slow down, clear things out of the way, and get down to what matters most. Genesis chapter 24 tells us that Isaac, one of the great patriarchs, went out in the field one evening to meditate really just as simple as that. We don't, we don't get any more information about it than that. He just went out to the field to walk and to be with the Lord. I don't know about you, but that sounds appealing to me. I love just being in the presence of God. And I find that whenever I find a, a place in the Word of God and I start dwelling on it and I start letting it turn over in my mind, and I start asking the Lord, Lord, what does this, what is this? What, what, what can I do with this? What would you do with this in me? I find that I too am able to be in the presence of the Lord, no matter where I'm at. Let's all stand. I think that's your, I think that's your desire tonight is to be in the presence of God. Can we lift up our hands in the house of the Lord right now? If, if that resonates with you, if that resonates with you, why don't you use your voice and cry out to the Lord right now and say, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want your word to come alive to me. Lord, I want to be in your presence. I want to open these altars. If there's someone that you want to step out of where you are.